Welcome to the Rebel Rebel Podcast. If you're listening for the first time, welcome. And if you've been listening for a while, welcome back. My name is Somi Ganapathy, and I will be your host. For this episode, I'll be speaking with Kurt Andino, who is the Executive Director of Friendly Waters. Friendly Waters is an organization that helps communities have better access to water and other very important resources. I have followed Friendly Waters for a while and really like the organization and how it's structured. Unlike larger organizations that work in developing countries, they really listen to the communities that they work with and really partner with them. If you have a chance, please check out their website. It's friendlywater.org, and I'll be certain to link to that in the show notes. Hi, Kurt. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. I've been really looking forward to this conversation. It really boggles me that in 2021, over 800 million people don't have easy access to water. Yeah, it's it's. There's different reasons for different times why they don't have access, uh, but now so many of those reasons are coming into a confluence of not having the infrastructure, not having the government funding, the climate change practices that are desperate practices because you're you're delving into an exhausting resource. And the people today seem to face such a calamity um, because of so many of these things coming together simultaneously uh, that it's, it's mind-boggling that in 2021 it's still a problem, but it's even, to me, it's even more apparent how, how could this not be a problem based on the practices that we use um, in the industrialized nations today. And Kurt, what do you mean by some of the practices we use? Um, well, I mean, it's, it's um, you know, I think a great example is if you're in Africa, you'll always see these large bottling companies for large American-owned soda manufacturers. And they remove water by a, like Olympic sized pool um, volumes every single day uh, that are necessary for the protection of the watershed and the utility of the people and the animals that live there um, without really regard to what's, what's happening. Uh, so yes, maybe they'll provide some bottled water um, and everybody can be like, oh, wow, we got some bottled water from this bottling company. Uh, but at the same time, they just they just lost millions of cubic yards of water that they could have been using for their own for their own needs. Um, some of the technologies that we kind of push on to Africa, um, the borehole well, I think, is a great example. Um, you see borehole wells everywhere. And most of them probably, I don't, I don't know. Uh, I'd say a lot of them aren't working. Um, and, and part of it is because they need to be maintained. But part of it is that you're also going deeper and deeper into the aquifer. And you start creating new hazards by going deeper. Um, not only are you draining the final remnants out of the pre-existing watershed, 
but now you're tapping into water that is going to be polluted by arsenic and fluoride. And you can see the results of fluorosis in lots of people in Africa where their teeth are, are nubby and, and brown or their bones are bent. And, you know, and of course, arsenic is a poison. So, uh, you know, in a, in, in a method to, to get to our last drop of water, we are bringing up water that is so poisoned uh, and so unuseful that you can't help but think that you're not really helping by putting in a borehole well. Wow, thanks for sharing that. I was not aware of that. It really underscores the need for everyone to have access to safe and clean water. Can you tell us about the background of Friendly Waters and how it got started? Yeah, it got started in 2010. Um, there were uh, um, a couple of Quaker men who um, got connected to each other through the um, through their faith um, and through their desire to do something to put their their faith into action. Um, and one of them had had knowledge of how to build a a bio sand filter and the other one had knowledge of how to raise money. Um, and together they figured that they could do something that would create some good impact. And they brought together uh, a group of, of friends, both with a capital F for Quaker uh, Quakers uh, and lowercase F just for people that they knew and were also interested in this kind of work. And they, they just started basically throwing themselves into the wind um, and answering any request that they had in order to try to promote creating a cleaner drinking water supply for communities that were either impoverished or marginalized or both, um, but didn't have access uh, um, to water. And uh, we tried diligently to make that work for a number of years. And I think there were some successes. Um, there were a lot of, a lot of not successes that went along with that, um, which at some point we decided to stop and think about what we were doing. And we realized that the, the filter that we were that we were promoting was probably not used as much as it could be, and it wasn't being well adopted uh, by the population that we were working with, while at the same time, we came to the very clear understanding that there were so many more needs other than just clean water. Um, and I think a, a good for instance is, is, is access to water. So most people, their first need is going to be water. They don't care if it's clean or dirty. You can always clean it. Um, boiling water is fairly normative in Africa or adding a uh, chlorine tab is fairly normative. Uh, but actually having access to the water is something that is becoming increasingly rare. Uh, so we started responding to the people's needs uh, or challenges is a better word. And I think that's really what changed the organization here in the last few years is that we are now looking at the, the local knowledge of the community to inform us what the challenges are and how we can help. Um, I think there's a kind of a knee jerk reaction 
in the U.S. that we have the best ideas and we know how to help and we're going to go there and we're going to help. Um, but if you don't ask people what they want or if they even want the help, then um, you're not going to be terribly successful. So I think we took a step back and we really focus now on talking to that community uh, and the community identifies what process it is they want us to undertake. And, um, and then we go from there. So it seems like right now, more people are facing an issue of access compared to uh, clean water. I think it's a bunch of things, uh, you know, like the communities we work with deal with resource scarcity. Um, and they often revolve around water issues, but they're always involving a basic resource that uh, without which life can simply become unreasonably challenging or even impossible to sustain. So we offer fairly simple solutions to overcome numerous resource challenges around issues dealing with, as I was saying, water security, water cleanliness, improved sanitation, accessing uh, quality building materials, methods, improved cooktops, um, accessing quality soap, um, and, and that it's, it sounds like a bunch of unconnected things, which in some sense they are, but there's a common thread that these are all necessary resources to which the people we work with don't have um, su sufficient, uh, regular, or maybe any access. So we provide that access. Got it. How do you decide what communities to work with? Um, the communities really decide whether or not they're going to work with us. Um, and there is great need throughout Africa. And there are thousands and thousands of communities that are either in, have challenges or are in distress. And what we look for is a community that is already self-organizing and is interested in creating change and we, we will as i said there's thousands of communities um but it's really the way the community is approaching it kind of like the notion that um everybody needs things and everybody has things um most people are in a position where what they have whether they know it or not can contribute greatly to what they need they're just missing a connecting component so we try to be that component um and so that the resources most people have and generally have in surplus um, that you'll find in the community are going to be like dreams, desires, self-interest, uh, willingness to participate in a larger effort, um, the contribution of time and labor. Um, and I know a lot of people might wonder whether or not dreams are a resource. And I would simply suggest that anything that helps create a positive outcome is a resource. And if someone is inspired enough by a particular thought for it to become a dream, well, that dream may be a greater motivational tool than anything we could ever buy. Um, so we go to communities that have articulated and we have a process that we work with them through to help them articulate their dreams, their desires, their goals, and how we can help them get there. And, and so it's, 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 it's kind of, it's a mutual thing. It's initiated by the community reaching out or somebody reaching out on behalf of the community. Um, and, 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 and then there's a period where we get to know each other when we, we see if this is going to be a good fit and, and 
everybody wants it to be a good fit, but it's not always going to be a good fit. There's going to be certain challenges, oftentimes communications that become insurmountable. Uh, so we'll have to put something on the back burner. But basically, if we can get to a position where everybody is willing to sit down, work together, we can take a list of what our shared assets are and uh, um, how we can move forward, um, we will do so. I guess it's 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 um it's really kind of like a whole holistic and like a long-term approach. Um, as I said, the communities, they determine the, the goals and priorities. They decide what outputs to pursue. We put it into a package that is likely to succeed because we create collective methods of measuring, evaluating, addressing challenges. And on top of that, then we also provide the upfront financing, uh, the training and knowledge sharing. And if there's any specific equipment that's required, we provide that as, as well. I remember Friendly Water from way back when, when you're primarily doing the biosand filter. It seems like you're doing a lot more than that now. Yeah, well, the, the, the biosand filter, in theory, works really well. Um, it does the job it's supposed to do. It's just not um, adopted uh, with much frequency because it's not something that's terribly attractive. Um, it, it's, it's a little bit clunky. Um, it's, you can't move it, uh, with any real ease. Um, it's not especially pretty to look at in somebody's kitchen and it, it, it ended up being very difficult to, to fix, uh, and to maintain. And it needs very much regular maintenance. And we're dealing oftentimes with communities that may not be able to provide it with that maintenance that's required. So uh, we're actually the same organization that created the biosand filter or publicizes the biosand filter and does trainings on it, uh, which is called COST, C-A-W-S-T, um, out of Canada, uh, has also introduced a a different type of um, thin film and um, a mesh filter, uh, which they have found to be very effective. And we are now introducing that to a couple of the communities that we live in. And rather than the people in the community producing it themselves, uh, it's, made, it's made in the country where it's being used uh, by people who have been trained by uh, Aqua Clara but it's um, it's um, a much more modern device and something that looks attractive on the counter. And, you know, the goal is to get people to use it. Um, and if there's an obstacle to getting them to use it, then we have to solve that obstacle. And uh, I think that's what we've done with the bio sand filter by replacing it um, with the aqua clara filter. And actually through some of the some of the stuff that we're other programs that we're doing uh, where they're creating revenue, uh, we now have an opportunity for people to be able to use their earnings to purchase one of these filters. Um, so they're still getting a filter, uh, but they're also getting other uh, technologies attached to that as well that give them the opportunity to create a, 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 so, a social, a health, or an economic benefit. And that's really our goal is that any any action we we undertake, we want it to create a social, a health, and an economic benefit. For sure. 
And and what are some of the programs that you have right now? Um, well, we do a um, we do a multi-purpose soap. We do the a rainwater catchment. We do a water filter. Um, we have a composting toilet. We have a rocket stove. We have perma gardens, and um, I can't remember what I've already mentioned. Um, but uh, oh, and then we have the uh, brick making, which is probably uh, the two of the neatest things. If you want me to talk about kind of the what we're up to right now in using these technologies, um, it's it's neat to talk about the multi-purpose soap for one thing. Um, and this goes, this goes right to the decision-making that's created by the community. So we went to the community of Masaha, uh, which is in Western Kenya in Kakamega County and had, had a successful conversation with them over a number of days about what their challenges were and, and what their assets were and how we could work together to, uh, create change. And this was right when COVID was really making a push and there was a great need for soap and we have a multi-purpose liquid soap um and because the schools weren't completely closed they were getting ready to close but they weren't completely closed but hand washing had become a huge issue um so we tackled that with them um what we what we didn't know starting out is that in order to legally put soap into a school, um, you have to get certification. And in Kenya, that's called KEBS, which is the Kenya Bureau of Standards. Um, and that was a process. And that took a couple of months uh, in order to do that. Uh, but we wouldn't have been able to get the soap into the schools without having done it. Um, but having done it, um, a local official, the Minister of Industrialization, heard about what we were up to. Uh, so he came by and visited us uh, doing the trainings in Masaha and the production. Um, and that got us more attention, which once we got our certification, we then have the soap. Now it's in restaurants, it's in hotels, and it's in the marketplace. Um, the way we did it is we did the training and then we created the subsidy, uh, a diminishing subsidy uh, for each batch. So the first batch we paid for, uh, which was a thousand liters. And then each subsequent batch, we paid 75%, 50%, 25%. And now we're at zero. Um, and which is fine because it's no longer needed. They have their own production team. They have a marketing and sales team. They have profits. Um, they have reinvestment back into the business so you can buy more materials. And then here's the, this, the coolest thing of all is through no, no effort of ours, the community group that we helped found called the Masaha Development Group um, asked another local nonprofit to teach them table banking. And they asked them to teach them table banking because suddenly they had money because they were making money off of the sale of the soap. Um, so they didn't have a need for table banking before, but suddenly we offered them a situation whereby using our product not only creates a health benefit and a social benefit that people can move around, but it created an economic benefit as well. Um, and um, the soap is called Meta, um, and it's sold now throughout Kakamega County. And the entire cost of this to our donors uh, to make all this happen was about $4,000. Oh, wow. 
That's awesome. Um, I think what's even <laughs> everything that I say, I think the next thing is cooler than the the, the last <laughs> thing. Um, but um, the bricks that we're doing is it's 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 a really interesting story, especially if you if you know Africa. Everyone in especially in East Africa always seems to be building something, um, but building materials are frequently either in short supply or they're really expensive or they have large negative environmental costs. Um, and particularly I'm thinking about bricks, the burn, they call them burn bricks. So um, these are bricks that are made in a kiln and these things are just, they're just, just a series of negatives. Um, number one, they're often malformed uh, or they're broken. Uh, they need enormous amounts of mortar uh, to be well fitted, mortar uses an exceptional amount of cement, uh, which is an energy uh, uh, intensive process. Um, the burning process, you're just going out into the forest and you're cleaving trees and you're sticking them into this kiln, which is actually made out of the bricks that you're burning. Uh, and you just keep shoving huge sections of trees in there um, until everything has been fired. And this is, it ties directly to deforestation that creates watershed depletion. It turns the soil into dust and, you know, it makes, it just makes a bad situation even worse. So we have this thing called an ISSB brick, which, you know, we didn't invent at all. We just, we just push it. Um, and that stands for in, uh, um, um, it's a soil stabilized brick and it's interlocking. Uh, so it looks like a, and as they can fit on each other one side will have a ridge and it will have a valley on the other side so they can stack into each other um and then an interlocking uh stabilized soil brick uh the blocks are made out of something called marum which is subsoil um but it's not found everywhere it's it's mainly in south america and africa in parts of asia uh especially india um you just add a little bit of sand and cement and the bricks can be used to build multi-story structures. Each one in each brick is identical to the one before it. Um, they can be dry stacked because of the fit, which means that they don't need mortar or a very small amount of mortar can be used. And there's two types. There's straight bricks and there's curved bricks. And the straight bricks can be used to really just build anything. We built a school in Zambia out of these bricks. Uh, they built a out of these bricks. Um, you can build anything. Um, but the curved bricks are really special because they can build rainwater catchment tanks. And going back to what we started this conversation, which was water security, it's just a huge issue there with climate change. Uh, there's usually rainy seasons. And much like the time you spend here in Seattle, you probably realize that from, you know, October through May, it rains, but not just kind of rains constantly. And that's how the two rainy seasons used to be in East Africa. And now it's turned into much different seasons with more sporadic rain where they come down in deluge. Um, and that really disturbs the normal water system. So groundwater is, is often coming out of floodwaters. So it's frequently unsafe to drink. 
Um, I mentioned that the, the borehole wells, you know, bring up fluoride and arsenic. Um, all this rain that now comes down onto these roofs and all we have to do is capture it. Um, so in Kenya, if you, Western Kenya, if you look at a very low rainfall year, that would be about 55 inches. Um, the normal school in East Africa is uh, a three-room classroom, and it's usually 30 meters by 10 meters, um, just using half that roof, so uh, 30 meters by five, so 150 square meters. Uh, with 55 inches of rain a year, you will be able to capture over 200,000 liters of water. 200,000. Now, wow. we're building three, three tanks at each school, and that's only going to be capturing 75,000 liters. Um, so there's, there's, there's enough resource availability with rainwater to supply clean available water to every man, woman, and child in Masaha if we only have enough water catchment tanks. That's incredible. How many of these systems have you installed? Well, we've probably built, uh, I would say, 40 or 50 rainwater catchment tanks um, over the course of our uh, organizational history. However, the style that we were doing did not necessarily give itself to durability um, or a long life. And so, and this is, this is even cooler than the other two things I talked about uh, because it's both of them combined. Um, so what we discovered is we can use the curved ISSB brick to build the rainwater catchment tank. Um, but in order to do that, we had to go through, once again, we had to get a licensed engineer to get a stamp on it. We had to get it's the, the drawings to be signed off by two government ministries, physical planning and building and construction. Um, but we now have a design that we are in the process of building uh, 1 million liters of water capacity in Masaha. And that's gonna be what, that's, that's gonna be 50 tanks. Um, we are, about 80% of the way through the process of building the first two tanks, uh, which are actually in a nearby village named Kambiri. Um, and what's neat about this is rather than having people come in from the outside and using outside materials to build the tank, we have local people who make the brick, have local masons who turn the bricks into the, into the tank. Um, and all of these individuals are earning the wages that they can now reinvest in the local community. So not only does a child have access to water all day so they don't have to leave school and walk for water um, and moms don't have to walk for water or and money isn't being spent at water kiosks, um, just by creating this and this by by providing this tool, by providing this tool of a of a of a brick press, um, these folks can chart their own course as to how they want to invest the money that they're getting from it, how they want to invest the money that they're saving from not having to walk for water. Um, you know, they can be buying, um, paying for school fees. They can put a better roof on their house. Uh, 
something people frequently do is they buy a motorbike and create a taxi business, um, anything. Um, and that's the whole point of, you know, we show up, we help, um, and then we step into the background. We don't leave because we want to stay there for as long as it's necessary for us to walk alongside to make sure that that the system is working. But it, this is this is really about their community, their goals, their lives, their dreams. And we're just there to help them uh, help them find those. That's really cool. Are you in many countries in Africa or primarily uh, Kenya and Zambia? Right now, we are just in Kenya and Zambia. Uh, we have been in the past in uh, Tanzania, um, Rwanda, Uganda, uh, the DRC in Central Africa. Um, but we realized that, that the scattershot method was not effective because we weren't spending enough time in one place. So rather than, rather than hopping around East Africa, we have now focused on creating uh, something that we call, call a build center. Um, and from the build center, which is the hub, uh, we can then send out spokes to other nearby communities and create individual build and build programs in those, th th those communities. Um, my goal really is, is that we have all the villages connected to the hub by not more than 75 kilometers. Um, and this allows us to respond rapidly to challenges or issues that are uncovered. But more so than that, because it doesn't really have much to do with us, it really has to do with the fact that now these communities can share things with each other because they're part of a hub network that we've helped create. And, uh, and that's really significant. And it was, what's kind of neat is each village we work with, we generally give, we buy one straight brick making machine and one curved brick making machine. And so we have two different villages in, in Kakamega that we're working with, and they had two different needs. One needed a lot more curved bricks and one needed a lot more straight bricks. So they each swapped a machine with each other so now one has two curved machines and one has two straight machines and you know that's not that's nothing that we had anything to do with that's something that they have something to, to do with because it was their desire and it was their community and it was their communication process with each other that led them to uh, create this faster production line that's really cool it's nice how um, friendly waters have stepped into the background and the communities are taking the leadership. Yeah, and and the, and what's neat is is that if we weren't there and they had access to these uh tools themselves um you know, they would they would be sharing it. Um that's just the way African communities are. Everything is shared. So, you know, it's ultimately the gift that we give is one that in the US often comes with these conditions or measurements of worth. Um that frankly just never occurred to the folks we work with. And that's the gift of sharing, you know, and, and, you know, sharing, which is ultimately premised on reality, it creates reciprocity, um, which that in turn creates um, a platform for understanding, you know, and once that happens, um, 
it's 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 amazing when, when we can look eye to eye, not up or down uh, at our partners. You know, great, great things can, can happen. And and that's really what you learn by working in Africa is that everybody is already is already 100 percent bought into the idea of working together and sharing everything. It's overcoming the, the, the misconceptions we have here of how things work. That is probably the greatest, um, the greatest obstacle to being more successful in Africa because everybody over there is as a group in it to win it. And it's a beautiful thing to see. Totally. That's awesome. And as an organization, Kurt, is there anything you're looking forward to? Oh, yes. Um, we're getting ready to start a build center in Zambia. Uh, we've done some work on and off again for the last couple of years there. Um, they have water security needs that are even greater than those in Kenya right now. Um, we plan on being, whenever we put in a build center, we're planning on having that build center run for at least 15 or 20 years with five-year commitments to each village that we're working with. Um, so our partners in in Zambia, uh, in a, a town called Manze, uh, is the Zambia Women and Girls Foundation. And they have basically scoped out three villages for us. Um, and we're gonna be starting our community engagement process with them here in the next month. It might have to be done uh, over Zoom uh, due to COVID. Um, but we, once, once, once this gets up and going, uh, we really see ourselves as having a long-term uh, presence in Southern Zambia uh, from, the, from the large town of Monze down to the very small village of Simwaticella. Uh, and I think that's something that everybody in the organization is really looking forward to it because we've seen we've seen what we can do in western kenya and and what we've seen is is inspiring even to us so being able to replicate this and then hopefully because we've done work in india as well uh and we're really really trying to get a toehold in india again uh so i think if 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 we can develop a couple of solid build centers uh, the future looks bright for the communities that we can partner with. And um, and I think the ultimate part of that uh, that we're looking most forward to is really transferring our operations from the U.S. to Africa. Um, by this October, I'm happy to say 40% of my staff will be African uh, and living in Africa. And we would like to get that up to 80% or 90% and then eventually have all of our operations overseas, which is where they really belong. That's awesome. Is there anything else that you'd like to tell us that I didn't ask you already? Um, yeah, I'd like to give a, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to, um, Bedford Rotary in Bedford, Massachusetts, on the other side of Boston from you, I guess. Um, and there's a Rotary Club there that has just put together a grant uh, for about $4,500 to help us build our uh, rainwater catchment tanks in Masaha. And um, it's, 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 an ex it's just an example, but it's that type of work by these small groups and individuals that understand and embrace our theory of change. And they see it for 
not what it is now, but the benefits that it can have in the next five, 10 or 20 years, and not on just us, but on the next generations. And it's that kind of forward thinking coming out of Rotary Clubs in particular, but any organizations that that support this kind of work, that really just makes it enjoyable to get up in the morning uh, and get started. So what's the best way to get in touch with you to learn more about Friendly Waters or even to sponsor a project? Yeah, you can go to our website, which is friendlywater.org, and there is a donate page on there. Um, You can also just send me an email, which is kurt, C-U-R-T, at friendlywater.org, and tell me what your questions are and ask me how we can help. And we will work diligently to make sure that anybody who is interested in being part of a process that is uh, and changes so many lives uh, has an opportunity to be part of it. It's so nice to learn about the work you're doing. It's really helping to transform communities. Yeah, and it's it's really putting it in back into the hands of the communities. Um, you know, I know that we are, you know, we're we live in the United States, and there's a certain level of arrogance that we're probably taught from the time we start school until the time we we leave this mortal coil. Um, and it's just, it's, it gets in the way. And if we can put that down for a minute and to see the, um, the distinct beauty in the world uh, that is just there to welcome us, um, we realize that together we can, we can do anything, anything is possible. Um, and it starts with the communities that we are fortunate enough to partner with. Thank you so much for your time, Kurt. I really enjoy talking to you. Oh, absolutely. It's been my uh, distinct pleasure to be able to spend some time with you as well. Thanks so much for listening. I certainly learned a lot from this episode, and I hope you learned some things too. If you have a chance, please check out Friendly Water's website, which is friendlywater.org. I'll certainly link to that in the show notes. That's all for this episode. Take care. Musical credits go to Purple Planet, and the track is Feeling Good. <laughs>